0: Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So um, I know ed, Ed's ed got, it's real, it's bad, it's us. No, it's whatever. It's it's re- But I, I've got simple, serious, and solvable. It's kind of what I always tell everybody, whether it's a 30-second you know, conversation in the elevator or a 15-week course for undergrads. Um, but since you're writers, I decided to add a fourth S. So um, we're talking stories here, right? So, so um, simple is, um, is how does it work? Serious is why is it bad? Solvable is what are you going to do about it? And of course, story is your job. Um, So, starting with simple, it's kind of odd that I've been working on this for 30 years. Um, If it's so simple, how come I still have a job? Um, But really, um, did you ever wonder why day is warmer than night? Did you ever wonder why summer is warmer than winter or Phoenix is warmer than Fargo? Um, This is not stuff you learn in graduate school. This is stuff you learn in like the fifth grade. Um, you do know the answers to these questions, if you just think about it for a second. In fact, the answer to all three questions is the same answer. The reason why is because when you put more heat into things than you take out, they warm up, Okay, and when you, and vice versa. Uh, now, I, I don't know if you guys, uh, many, many of you aren't from around here. H- have you heard? Um, today's supposed to be 75 degrees, and tomorrow's supposed to be like 20? Um, that's not climate change. Okay, that's the weather, and the weather is all about the air moving around sideways. Okay, so the air that's here today that's like late summer is going to be gone tomorrow, and it's going to be replaced by air from someplace else that's a whole lot colder. And that's what makes the weather happen is that blobs of air move around on the, on the planet. Um, you know, they've trapped me here without being able to talk with my hands. I don't know if I can do this, Susan, <laughs> uh, but, but when you look at the whole world, the world is round. There are no sides to the world. Sideways motion of heat has no relevance to the total amount of heat of the planet Earth. The only way that the Earth can get warmer or colder is by exchanging heat through the top. And you are not used to thinking of the world as having a top, but as an atmospheric scientist, I think of it as having a top. It's the top of the air, and you know the sun comes in, and that's the heat in. But if that was the whole story, that's just heat in, right? Heat in minus heat out equals change of heat. So the world would just get hotter and hotter and hotter forever until it melted and boiled and vaporized and it would be the end of the world. So clearly, that's not the whole story. There's another whole story there, which is that the heat has to get out. Again, in the fifth grade, you learn conduction, convection, and radiation are ways to move heat around. Uh, There is no conduction to outer space because it's a vacuum. There's no convection to outer space because gravity holds the air down. The only way to get rid of that solar heat is through infrared radiation. You can't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. The world radiates heat out to space, and if more comes in from the sun than radiates out, the world warms up, and vice versa. This is is just very, very simple sort of fifth grade level uh, physics. Now, um, maybe you haven't heard this part before, um, but the infrared going out has to go through the air. The air is made of molecules. The molecules are almost entirely these two molecules. These two gases, 99% of the air we breathe. You know about the first one, because if you hold your breath for a minute, you'll figure it out. But the the other one is just fill gas, uh, electromagnetic waves going up through the air. Um, You guys heard this stuff before, right? Uh, Protons, neutrons, and electrons, right, that make up atoms. These things in the middle are supposed to be shared electrons. It's a chemical bond. The magnetic field going up, this is the infrared radiation, can kind of grab a hold of these electrons and make them go back and forth. Uh, Kind of goes like, woo, 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 woo. Doesn't really make that sound. I just make that part up. But but that wiggly thing is a vibration of the bond, which has now converted some of the electromagnetic energy into vibrational energy of the molecule. Now, that's the only way you can rearrange the geometry of 99% of our molecules. But there's a tiny number of molecules in the atmosphere that have three atoms instead of two. These are by far the most abundant gases. In the air that are not O2 or N2, carbon dioxide. All right, just I understand you want me to use the mic, but I'm going to put it down just for a sec and talk loud. So, so now I'm a CO2 molecule. I got carbon dioxide. Right along comes an electromagnetic wave, grabs a hold of those electrons, goes woo. Okay, and then it can re-emit that photon, go back to its ground state. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But there's more. Because unlike O2 and N2, it can go <laughs> Each one of these different ways of wiggle in this molecule absorbs a different wavelength of infrared light, a different energy level of photon, and that's what makes CO2 a greenhouse gas. It's not because of greed or capitalism or Al Gore. It's just bad luck that the molecule that's emitted when we burn carbon has three atoms instead of two atoms, and therefore more ways to wiggle, more ways to interact with the outgoing infrared radiation. So you've seen the cartoon, right? The sun comes in, the infrared goes out, but only about 6% of the infrared actually escapes. Almost all of it is trapped in the atmosphere by interacting with these various molecules or with dust or clouds or whatever. So I have a radiation measure thing in my office that I didn't bring. But if you point it up at the sky at night, when there's no sun, I would measure about 300 watts of heat coming down from the, the warm sky at night. Okay, that 300 extra watts that we get at the surface at night is entirely due to emitting uh, molecules in the atmosphere that shower down on, on the surface. Just like, like a heat lamp outside your shower, the air warms us up. Um, This is not just some cockamamie theory. This is this is direct measurements all over the world. So common-sense explanation. This is a different story you can tell about climate change. Um, Many of you are old enough to remember incandescent light bulbs. This is a four-watt incandescent light bulb. You know, back when I was a kid, we used them as Christmas tree lights. When my kids were little, we used them as night lights in a hallway to let the kids find a bathroom. Um, If you double the number of these wiggling molecules in the sky, It adds this much extra heat, four watts, to every square meter. Okay, you guys don't do meters, probably, but each one of these tables is about a square meter. You can imagine a four-watt night light bulb there, and there, and there, and there, and there. Oh, but also here, and here, and here, and here. In fact, not just this room, not just Colorado, but the entire world covered with little four-watt light bulbs every three feet. And you're going to leave those night light bulbs on 24-7 for 365 days a year forever. And if you did that, that would make the world a little bit warmer. Right? There are only four watt light bulbs, so it might not be a whole lot warmer, but it's not going to be zero, and that's why adding CO2 to the atmosphere warms the world, and believe it or not, we knew all of that before light bulbs were invented. This was discovered 160 years ago um, by, well, the... Uh, First measurements in a laboratory of the absorption due to CO2 were made in the 1860s when Abraham Lincoln was president. It's not something that we figured out just recently. Um, This is stuff that's been published in the scientific literature for 160 years. Nobel Prize was awarded in 1896. Um, This is is not new science. Um, Choose your story. Uh, A lot of you think scientists expect a warmer future because it's been warming up recently. And sure, it's been warming up recently, you know, a lot. Um, but this isn't how we figure this out. This is not the basis of scientific uh, confidence in understanding the physics of, of climate. Rather, we know that adding heat to the world will cause it to warm up, right? Adding heat to the, to the world, just like adding heat to the bottom of a pot of water will cause the water to change its temperature, adding a measurable amount of heat to the world will cause the world to warm up. This is, this is pretty straightforward stuff, not that hard to understand. Um, Okay, so I got to talk about why it's bad. Nobody likes this part. Um, Ed says it's real, it's bad, it's us. Feel guilty, whatever. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to talk you out of feeling guilty about it. You um, never said that. You never said no, but it's us. Okay, um, so it is us. Uh, if you, if you burn a little bit of CO2 of carbon, you get a warmer world. If you burn a lot more carbon, you get a lot more warmer. But look at the difference between the land and the ocean. Right, The land warms up more in the ocean because the oceans are really deep, 13,000 feet on the average. You put a four-watt light bulb on 13,000 feet of water, it doesn't warm up very much. Uh, you put that same four watts on land, it warms up more. Uh, Look at the Northern Hemisphere versus the Southern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere is mostly ocean, doesn't warm as as much as the Northern Hemisphere. Look at the difference between the snowy places and the not snowy places. Uh, Snow reflects sun to space. You warm up enough to melt the snow. Then you soak up some more sun. That adds over and above the four watt light bulb. Um, So do you guys know anybody who lives on land in the Northern Hemisphere where it snows? You get extra. So here in this low emissions future, that's 3C of warming in the middle of North America. Here's 6C in the high emissions world. But wait, you guys don't do Celsius either. So let's convert them to Fahrenheit. Um, that's more like five degrees of warming in the low emissions future, or 10 degrees of warming in the high emissions future. Even that doesn't sound too bad. You know, well, wait, wait till tomorrow. 10 degrees of warming will sound OK. Um, But we're not talking about tomorrow. We're talking about on the average. And you guys don't really have it in your head what 10 degrees Fahrenheit of average warming looks like unless you look at a map. Here's a map of average high temperatures in the United States in Fahrenheit. Each color is five degrees Fahrenheit on a map, so 10 degrees Fahrenheit of warming is moving two colors on a map. That's actually pretty far. That's like moving six or 800 miles south. Um, if you're a farmer in eastern Colorado and you swap out the climate of Albuquerque for the climate of, of you know, Yuma, Colorado, you're going to notice this, right? Um, Illinois is moving to Mississippi. Washington DC is moving to Tallahassee. These, these are big changes. A 10 degree Fahrenheit average temperature change is a, is a ginormous change. Around here, We don't have to go hundreds of miles to see different climates. I understand some of you are foolish enough to sign up for a trip to Rocky Mountain National Park tomorrow. Um, So when you go up that mountain, it gets colder and colder up there. In fact, in Colorado, it gets about 10 degrees Fahrenheit colder on the average for every 3,000 feet of elevation that you gain. So you can imagine 10 degrees Fahrenheit of warming is like moving our Great Plains climate up to Estes Park. Or moving, you know, the forest climate of Estes Park up to the top of the Continental Divide. That's what happened at the last uh, the end of the last Ice Age. All these zones sort of marched up the mountain. But it took a hundred centuries for 10 degrees Fahrenheit of warming at the end of the last Ice Age. And we're talking about doing that same amount of warming in one century, a hundred times faster than it happened uh, in the last great global warming. And if you um, take 100 centuries to do that. The trees and animals and plants and so forth can sort of march up along with the climate. But they have to take it one generation at a time. You do it in 100 years, there's not time for those, those zones to sort of march up the mountain. They just get out of, out of whack. We happen to live in a region that's very sensitive to this. Now, of course, some of you aren't from around here. Um, if I was given this talk in Florida, it wouldn't be about, uh, about drought. It would be about sea level rise. Um, But this is a map of precipitation in the western U.S. uh, in, in inches and, you know, you see most of it's brown. If you've ever driven across to California, it's brown in real life too. Um, But how do we support 75 million people on this map? Um, It's because of the water in the mountains. It's because of the the snowpack in the mountains that is our major water supply that feeds our cities and our agriculture and our tens of millions of citizens down here. And if you swap out the climate, uh, you you know, of 3,000 feet below and you you move all those zones up, um, that has a huge impact. On our, on our water supply. Probably more important, as Brad's going to talk about water supply, more important is our water demand. If you warm our climate by 10 degrees Fahrenheit, you need a heck of a lot more water, right? If you've ever watered your lawn or grown crops, you know that hot weather takes more water out of plants and, and soils and so forth. So as the climate warms, not only does the supply get uh, restricted, but the, the demand goes up um, tremendously. The other thing around here that's very important with respect to drought is fire. Of course, warmer air increases the uh, evaporation, transpiration out of the forest. Um, Beyond that, we have a longer warm season. There are more days that you're sucking water out of that soil. And finally, um, maybe, as I say, you're not from around here, you don't know this, but but imagine the really bad fire days when it's 99 degrees in the shade and 3% relative humidity and blowing 50 miles an hour. Those are the days when they have to evacuate the firefighters and when the fire sweeps down into suburbia and burns hundreds of homes and it's just a terrible thing. Those days happen much more often in a hot summer than in a cool summer. Because of all this, um, estimates are something like a 600% increase in acreage burned in the Mountain West per 1 degree Celsius of warming. So you can do the math. If you have three or four or five degrees Celsius of warming, um, we're talking about catastrophic increases in wildfire to the point where the fires happen uh, more frequently than the time it takes to grow a tree, in which case, of course, you've just permanently converted forests into something else. Um, I'm going to skip that one. So moving on, I want to talk about solutions. There's really basically one solution to this problem, and it's to stop setting shit on fire, right? This is not that hard to understand. Every time you burn an atom of carbon and combine it with oxygen, it makes a molecule of CO2. Um, Now, there are different ways to stop setting stuff on fire, Uh, But primarily, uh, the two that we have control over are the amount of energy that we use to live decent lives and the way that we make that energy, right? So let's first talk about uh, the amount of energy we use. Kind of a complicated figure. I got this from Ed Mazria, a famous architect. Um, These are projections out to 2030 of energy use in buildings in the United States. Um, It turns out that our buildings, our built infrastructure, consumes about twice as much energy as our cars. Okay, Think of your carbon footprint. You're probably thinking about your car. Um, but actually, buildings are, are roughly twice the carbon footprint or the energy footprint of cars. Um, and you can see that US Department of Energy projected um, 10, 15 years ago that our energy use in buildings would continue to increase monotonically out to 2030. Um, They they are still projecting increases, but each year those increases get smaller. The reason is not because we're freezing in the dark. The reason is because architects have finally started taking energy efficiency much more seriously because there's money to be made in it. Uh, And just this one change alone will save us $4.5 trillion in the US alone by 2030. This is not chump change. And the idea, of course, is to invest that $4.5 trillion that we're going to save on less wasted energy in our buildings and invest it into uh, clean energy. Boy, these microphones bum me out. Um, (laughs) Let's talk for a moment about clean energy. Uh, This is the price per watt of photovoltaic panels, solar cells. The year I graduated high school was 1977 and solar panels cost $77 a watt in the year I graduated high school. Solar panels are now 30 cents a watt, so that's 200 times cheaper than when I graduated high school. I mean, I missed my 40th reunion. Um, I feel like it was just yesterday that I graduated high school, but imagine if other stuff was 200 times cheaper than when I graduated high school. Imagine if like cars were 200 times cheaper than when I graduated high school. It, it's amazing what's happened with the prices of renewable energy to the point where in most places, um, solar and wind power are now the cheapest forms of new power. So it's it's really, really changed. If you had the idea that this was about environment versus the economy, that is an old idea. That is an old story. You've got to stop telling that story. That is no longer a correct story. Let me talk a little bit about cars. Yes, there's a toilet on this. It's not a suggestion. Uh, Economists estimate that a complete conversion of the world economy off of fossil fuels is going to cost about 1% of global GDP. Okay, now I know this is kind of an abstract thing. You guys know, maybe maybe because you're reporters, what's the world's GDP, the size of the world economy? Oh, You don't know. 85 trillion dollars a year. So 1% of that is a boatload of money. It's about 850 billion dollars a year, not a small thing to commit to. Um, That's about what it cost our ancestors to retrofit all the world's cities with indoor plumbing 100 years ago. Imagine the cost, if you were to do it today, just in labor alone, of digging up every street in New York and Paris and London and laying sewer pipes and knocking down tenement walls 20 stories tall and putting in hot and cold running water and knocking out all the partitions inside the flats and putting in toilets and sinks and showers, um, about 1% of the global economy. Holy moly. And that was so worth it, because now we got toilets and sinks and showers. And not only that, imagine what it did for plumbers, right? Imagine what it did for plumbing suppliers. Imagine what it did for the grocery store down the street from the plumber, or the children of that plumber who could take that money and go to college. Um, When capitalist economies invest in massive infrastructure projects, they actually provide millions and millions of jobs. That's actually what led to a lot of prosperity during the days of of indoor plumbing. this is just to give you some context. There's 1% of the global economy. It's a boatload of money, right? Um, people have said we should think about the Manhattan Project or the Apollo program. Uh uh-uh. uh. Those are tiny. Indoor plumbing absolutely dwarfed the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Project. These are huge, huge expenses. Mobile phones. Raise your hand if you have a brand new mobile phone that you bought in the last 12 months. Not a lot. Okay. How about cars? Brand new cars. Anybody here have a brand new car? Only one? You're kidding me. Man, they don't pay reporters as much as I thought they did. Um, so, so 1% of the world economy, that's what it costs to save humanity. Um, mobile phones, $600 billion a year. Not for data service and Verizon bills, just the handsets alone, $600 billion a year. So. Uh, New cars, not not keeping your old clunker running, but brand new cars, $2.2 trillion a year on new cars. Roads, oh my god, don't get me started on roads. $300 trillion that we've spent on roads in the last 100 years. Um, Amazing. Where did that money come from? Where did that money go? Did that destroy our economy? It will cost us vastly less to save humanity than it cost our ancestors to build all those paved roads. Um, Now I want to tell you a story, Um, this is actually an important uh, part of the story, this is the part that Ed said, but it wasn't on your slides about there's hope. Um, There's no such thing as game over or too late or we're screwed. It is certainly not the case that we have only 12 years to act, and then it's all over. This fight will last far beyond our lifetimes. The stakes will always be enormous. Time will always be short. There will never be an excuse to stop. This is from Dave Roberts at Vox, this, this quote. Um, these are my grandparents. That's Max, and that's Francis. And um, it wasn't them personally that did all that indoor plumbing, but it was their generation. And when they were done with indoor plumbing, they did rural electrification, which was another 1% of the world economy. And then they fought the Nazis, and God knows how much that cost. I mean, these were gigantic projects that this generation did. And it did not ruin the economy of their generation. It actually created the prosperity of their generation. These are my parents. That's Margie, and that's Bob. And their generation went on with these gigantic infrastructure projects, for example, the interstate highway system. Uh, They they fought the Cold War. They landed people on the moon. They did all these gigantic, you know, B-hag things that, that, uh, big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Um, This is me and my wife back when I had hair. Uh, Our generation did it too, right? Our generation spent more than 1% of the world economy on PCs, put, putting a computer on every desk in every office on Earth. It cost trillions of dollars to do that. When we were done with that, we replaced all of the landline phones in the world with little you know, $800 YouTube things. And then when we were done with that, we built the internet. In fact, I guess we did that at the same time. So all of these were sort of giant 1% of the world economy projects, and not a one of them bankrupted our economy. In fact, that was all of the economic growth in my adult lifetime. These are my kids, that's Matt and that's Nate, and they get to do it again. They get to replace aging infrastructure that's destroying their economy with new infrastructure that will provide all of the the prosperity in their generation and will save the world. You can choose your story, a lot of people think and people have told this story ad infinitum that our modern world is based on extraction, that there's value in a lump of coal that you dig up and you sell it to somebody for a profit and they set it on fire and they sell the energy for a profit to somebody who makes products and services out of that energy for a profit and you wheel and deal and pretty soon you got yourself an $85 trillion a year global economy. And maybe that's true, but that's a terrible story. That story is a tragedy. That story has a sad ending. I hope that it's not true that when we either run out of coal or decide to stop burning it, that we're going to go back to the Middle Ages and freeze in the dark. And that will be the case for all future humans. What a terrible story to tell. I prefer this story. We create our world. We created the modern world through creativity and ingenuity and hard work. It doesn't come from the ground. It comes from the sweat of our brows and the sparks in our souls. And we are not running out of those things, and we're not going to anytime soon. Thank you.